Now, death is something that, if you like, we all live with. It's there. It's a terrible phrase to use, but Nigella might like it. Often the meat and drink of journalism. And people write and speak about death. And all these, I picked them because they, they have a, a link. More than a tenuous link, I don't think, what I'm going to talk about. Woody Allen, the fam famous comedian, film star, said, I'm not afraid of death, I just don't want to be there when it happens. Well, unfortunately, he will be, but if it's a long, drawn-out death, very likely lots of other people, like journalists, will be there as well. One of the problems, I don't think just of the, the modern world, going back many years in journalism, deaths that are foretold, foreseen, people dying slowly, I think it may well have been either George VI or Edward VII who apologised for the length of time it took him to die. Some of his last words were supposed to have been to something that I have been a long time dying and I apologise for it. When you get these drawn out death watches, journalists death watches, they are very, very hard for journalists to cover very hard sometimes for the audience to take, and obviously, more to the point, people who run hospitals, and families, friends, and admirers to take. Cicero said the life of death is placed in the memory of the living. As soon as you have the death of an important person, it's the living. Whether it's the family that then has to live without that person, or in our case, perhaps the journalists who have to report on that death and try and think about all the issues that I will bring up about how you deal with that. Because you deal with it in different ways according to different people, different reputations, different types of death. Andy Warhol said, dying is the most embarrassing thing that can ever happen to you because somebody else, someone's got to take care of all your details. Well, often journalists are the people who take care of those immediate details for the public, for people. He would have been a very difficult one, I think, in some ways to, to report on his death, because there were so many facets to him, and so many controversial ones, and it's when you get controversy that it becomes particularly difficult, as I hope I'll demonstrate. Samuel Johnson matters not how a man dies, but how he lives. The act of dying is not of importance. It lasts so short a time. Well, you hope it lasts so short a time, when it is drawn out. And I think one of the examples I will use, Nelson Mandela, the drawn-out process of coverage and of his, well, what was thought to be his impending death when he's in hospital, and possibly still, well, obviously still, his impending death, because nobody quite knows his condition. And, and interestingly, I was at a, a different meeting yesterday at the Foreign Office talking to previous British High Commissioners to South Africa, and the subject of Mandela and his health and his death came up. And the fact that in South Africa, as I will talk about, the way it was reported and the actions particularly of Western journalists became very, very offensive. But what was also offensive, and I will deal with this, to the family and to many admirers and ordinary South Africans, is the way that the media around his health and still the question of how ill is he, how close to death, is he being just kept alive by a life support machine, and the extent to which that is being governed not by his family, but by the government, 
and for very clear and obvious political reasons, because politics comes into death. I learned this very much in my first job in journalism, when I was a monitor at the BBC Monitoring Service, not that far from here at Cavisham. And I was monitoring Soviet broadcasts in particular in English to the rest of the world. My background area was Soviet involvement, particularly in Southern Africa. And I monitored Soviet broadcasts to, to Africa in English, but also to Europe, to North America, to Asia. And I was on the night that Brezhnev died. And the way his death was managed by the Soviet media was very, very interesting. Because of course, particularly in countries with closed journalistic media systems, and that was a very closed, very controlled system, everything that was broadcast, whether it was about policy, events, or particularly death, death and how you manage the succession, was very closely politically controlled. And I was on very late one night, I think it was about one o'clock in the morning, and on Moscow Radio in English, they always used to play what became this incredibly tooth-grindingly irritating tune called Moscow Nights. And at the top of the hour and at various other places, I think it was slightly, and we always hoped, I think, James, this was the case, they were aping the structure of the BBC World Service. And instead of playing Lily Bolero, which I came to love, even though it's a very questionable tune in its origins, they played Moscow Nights, and this was their theme tune, this was their idea, so people knew they were listening. And at the top of the hour, when I tuned in to monitor this and report any news, we didn't get Moscow Nights. We got solemn music, very solemn music. There was a little bit of news, much more solemn music. Nothing was announced, but you immediately knew that one of the top two or three, and probably Brezhnev, was dead. Now, this happened also on Moscow Radio Domestics, because the Russian monitors were right next to me. And of course, we exchanged notes and immediately typed out, typed out, we didn't have computers then, believe it or not, six-part ply carbon paper, typed out Radio Moscow on all channels playing solid music. This was their preparation, their beginning of the framing of the announcement of death. And of course, it was always said that they delayed the announcement so that the succession could be worked out by the Politburo and the Central Committee. And that is an important part. And when, for example, as I'll, I'll talk about, I was running courses for people, preparing journalists at the World <coughs> Service for how we would deal with the death of Pope John Paul II, we would not only, once he died, deal with his death and looking back on the life of John Paul as a pope and John Paul as a man, but also John Paul as the head of a Catholic church that would then elect somebody new. And so it was not just, what does the death mean in, the, in terms of the loss of a major world figure and what he meant to people, but also what his death means in what happens next in the Catholic church. And so with a case like that, and with Mandela as well, and obviously was the case with Brezhnev, domestic and international media are thinking about how do we report the death? How, what do we say about that person? If there are controversial circumstances of the death, what do we say about the, the, their dying, their process of dying? But also, how soon in terms of taste and decency, do we get on to what happens next? So it is important, it may last a short time, but it is, it is framed. 
And just, just one, because um, I think a lot of people, so I, I have to admit, often with newspapers, the first thing I look at is the obituaries page. Maybe it just shows my age. I'm looking to anyone I know there. Uh, but Clarence Darrow, the lawyer in the famous Scopes trial in America, the, the trial about Darwin and creationism, I never wanted to see anybody die, but there are a few obituary notices I have read with pleasure. Because there is sometimes almost a vicarious, I won't see pleasure, pleasure may be the wrong way of putting it, but he put it like that, an interest, something beyond just journalistic interest in, in looking at how people's lives are reported. Timothy Mayer has, has written a, a, very, a very good piece on death and the media. As he said, death and dying have been part of most cultures and societies, the topics of it, not just obviously every society deals with death and dying, but how you deal with it. Death and dying is a topic throughout the world since the invention of movable type printing press. I would actually argue before it's been a subject before that. And funny enough, I, my students at Kent University, I was dealing with new media and the reporting of humanitarian crisis with them on Monday. And I wanted to get over the point to them that media, the media we're using at any one time is always, in a way, new media. And it's always advancing. And you do then get changes qualitatively as well as quantitatively, but you have to look at it as a spectrum, something actually a continuous process, not we've got that media, now we've got this media, then we'll get another media. It all morphs one into the other. I mean, in a way, it's not unlike um, Thomas Kuhn's work on the structure of scientific revolutions. Different paradigms, but one paradigm is born out of the previous paradigm. And I was saying to them that, in fact, you can go back before the printing press to talk about the way death and the consequences of it are reported. And you just have to look, and you can still get online copies of the old manuscripts of an eyewitness, or a monk who claimed he was an eyewitness, to the killing of Thomas a Becket and what that meant and the consequences of that. And that was then broadcast, obviously not through any broadcast media, but broadcast from the pulpit. So there have been ways of reporting and dealing with death since very, very early on. And the media spent a great deal of time on events connected to death and dying and the controversies that surround it. I mean, I'm sure John and James will remember I can't remember the year, but there was a huge, very huge controversy, I think as usual, prompted by the Daily Mail, which tends to prompt controversies about the BBC, about on the day of the death of the Queen Mother, who was, for many people, particularly royalists, a very revered figure, that the main newsreader that day, Peter Sissons, did not wear a black tie when he presented the news and the programme. And this was actually taken very, very seriously. I think we've slightly moved beyond that. But the whole formalities, the things about taste and decency and how you deal with a death are very, very important. And when you're reporting a death, you're thinking about lots of things. Who's your audience? Do you vary the way you report it to different audiences? As I'll get onto in more detail later, I had to think about this very, very carefully. I was involved in one of the the bigger media exercises with sudden death, but the sudden death of a very well-known person, and that was Princess Diana. I can still remember it vividly. Early on, very early on a Sunday morning, I had been out on a Saturday night with friends, 
somewhere very locally to dinner with friends who liked their red wine, as indeed do I. Uh, I drunk quite a lot of red wine, but I walked home because it was walking distance, gone to bed. About two o'clock in the morning, the phone rang, and it was my extremely unpleasant boss in World Service News. I was at the time acting head of World Service News programs, and he said, very bluntly, though in some ways it's the best way to do it, Die and Dodie may be dead, get your ass into Bush House. I said, maybe difficult, I've had at least a bottle and a half of red wine, certainly can't drive myself. He said, well, get a taxi and we'll pay for it. So I got up, switched the television on. Now, it was in the days before lots of rolling news, but there was news on the BBC at that time in the morning because of this. Started watching it, it was clear that Dodi Al-Fayed, the son of Mohammed Al-Fayed, the owner of Harris, was already dead in a car crash in an underpass in Paris. Diana was in hospital, and there was something about the tone of the reporting that wasn't we're reporting on somebody severely injured who is receiving treatment, but we expect they're going to survive. It was very much we're reporting on the impending death of somebody after a very serious accident. I then drank about three gallons of coffee. I phoned for a taxi and the cab just didn't arrive, so I stupidly just asked about the police. Got in the car, drove very carefully to Bush House, parked, and then spent the next 20 hours, 17 hours of it on air, and a few hours at the end doing what we call a wash up with the bosses while the next team took over putting out the news of her death and how the world reacted. Because I was putting it out to a world audience, so I had to think very much, what do we tell a world audience? What level of detail do we tell them? Do we actually tell it in a different way in terms of, and this comes later in the list, in a way, sensitivity, a different level of sensitivity to that we would use reporting it within Britain? but also knowing that we had listeners in Britain. Lots of things. You also have to think, when you're reporting a death, societal norms and standards. How is death viewed in your society, by your audience, by the wider society? Is it something that is talked about in a matter-of-fact way, as it is in many societies? Is it something you perhaps approach more obliquely and very carefully. I mean, if you think of all the different ways you can say somebody has died, and this again at this meeting yesterday when we were talking about Mandela, and with lots of people that at this meeting who knew him personally and had worked with him, most of them, I noticed, could hardly bring themselves to use the words die and death. They talked about when he comes to the end of his life when he passes on, when he is no longer with us. And you have to think about some of the ways that is represented and the ways in which, as with Diana's death, and when we get on to talking about that in more detail, some of the information that became available was not really widely reported because it was very, lots of ways, gory and very medical, and lots of people don't like that. But in lots of societies, they expect that. I mean, I had, again, this brought home to me by other students I've taught in the past. But when I first taught at MA level at Brunel University, I taught on the MA in international journalism there. And in the first year's class, I had a great range 
of journalists from a variety of different countries. And at the time, we were talking a lot about coverage of death in Iraq. And three of the students were from the Middle East, one from Egypt and two from Jordan. And they felt that the British portrayal of death in the media was, as they put it, they didn't, they didn't split hairs over this. They said it's pussyfooting, it's weak, it's pathetic. There was a particularly horrible example of some what were called contractors, US contractors in Iraq who worked for a company called Blackwater, who were effectively mercenaries, working on security contracts there, who were killed in Fallujah, their bodies were burned in their car, and then parts of the bodies were displayed on a bridge. BBC, I think CNN, most other TV stations portrayed very little of that in pictures. Al Jazeera portrayed more, and domestic Arabic TV stations much more. And this wasn't in any way, I think, a matter of gloating or a matter of making a political point. It was a different cultural approach to representations of death and bodies. I saw it as well when um, I worked in Malawi for a while for the monitoring service, monitoring radio, because at the time Malawi did not allow foreign journalists into the country, and I was there under very strict conditions. But we used to get all the Zambian press as well, because we monitored Zambian radio. And one day they had a story about, and I don't know if it would now change, this would certainly be somewhere on YouTube, and probably be Twittered madly, but there was a crime story, the, the Lusaka Strangler, a serial killer who had killed a large number of people in Lusaka and was then trapped by the police and he threw himself off the top of a high building. And the Zambia Daily Mail had sequential shots. Strangler on the building, strangler in the air, strangler near the ground, splat. And a very graphic splat picture. That would not be reported in that way within the British media. You've certainly seen the video on YouTube. There were also, when I was at the BBC and beginning to teach journalists, we had long, long discussions within the BBC College of Journalism about how we tried to approach advising journalists, particularly in television and online, about showing hostage videos. <coughs> hostage videos that ended up with the graphic on-camera killing of the hostage. At what point did you stop the video? How much did you show? Were we actually, in a way, misleading or featherbedding our audience by not showing very much? Or were we shocking them if we showed them too much? So there are lots of norms. There are sensibilities, institutional sensibilities. There are certainly sensibilities in Britain over how and what you report about the royal family. Still, taste in the portrayal of death and dying, in a way, I've dealt with that. Taste and balance in the portrayal of the dead and the known reputation of the dead. If you think about how Diana's death was reported, the public reaction to that as well, Margaret Thatcher's death, although after Margaret Thatcher's death, you then had this strange situation of the preparations for the funeral, which was not quite a state funeral, but almost. But then, and I don't know if any were... If you, if you were abroad at the time and were, were across this, the sort of controversy that, that grew up, there is a song from the film The Musical The Wizard Oz, Ding Dong The Wicked Witch Is Dead. Lots of people bought that song on iTunes to give a different view of how they viewed Margaret Thatcher. Lots and lots of people, particularly obviously in the Conservative Party, people who had great respect for her, thought that was disrespectful. 
I actually have a slight sneaking feeling she would have found it quite funny. <laughs> because I think she was a tough woman, I didn't agree with a lot of her policies, but I think she had a sense of humour. <laughs> An anecdote from yesterday again. Sir Robin Rennick, the British High Commissioner in South Africa, when Nelson Mandela was released. Margaret Thatcher had criticised the ANC and Nelson Mandela publicly. She wrongly, in this case, was accused of calling him a terrorist. She didn't. It was in answer to a specific question about some policies of the ANC. She didn't mean it refer to refer directly to Mandela. But Mandela was then worried about meeting her because he wanted to make the right impression. He didn't want to have a conflictual relationship with her because he knew Britain could have influence over the process in South Africa. And what he got Rennick to do, and Rennick said this was really funny, and he said he had to role play with Mandela. And Thatcher knew he was going to do this and thought it very funny. He was going to role play being Margaret Thatcher in a fake meeting with Mandela to go through some of the difficult issues. And at some point, Rennick as Thatcher says to Mandela, well, what about all this rubbish about nationalizing mines and banks? And so Mandela then had to think, and in the role play with Rennick, work out a way of doing this. When he actually met Thatcher, Thatcher asked in exactly the same words, what about this rubbish about nationalizing the banks and mines? At which point Mandela, according to Rennick, burst into laughter and said, that's exactly what the role-playing Robin Rennick said to me when he played you. And he said, Thatcher absolutely loved this. And this was a moment where there was a certain bonding, a certain, they could laugh together. And if you could laugh together, you could in some way work together. Anyway, back to death. Um, you do have to think about sensitivity towards family and friends. In the BBC editorial guidelines, and I think in every journalist's own personal guidelines, there should be a thing that says, never do anything in your journalism that will knowingly and unnecessarily, and I think unnecessarily is the important word, cause pain or offence to the loved ones of somebody who's died. Now that becomes very difficult when you're dealing with a Gaddafi, with a Saddam Hussein, with an Osama bin Laden. But I think you still have to maintain your impartiality, stand back, not get any level, even if it's you play clips of, say, American leaders exulting over the death of bin Laden, or Libyan opposition politicians exulting over the death of Gaddafi. As a journalist, you have to present that, you have to stand back and have a certain sensitivity. And then when do you get on to the what comes next? And I'm not really sure, there's not a certain point, but when, for example, we were dealing with the approaching death of John Paul II, how many hours, and we did think in terms of hours, before you get into a detail, not just a passing reference to there will be a gathering of the cardinals. They will go into conclave. They will elect a new pope. You could mention that because that, in a way, was part of the process, part of the, if you like, the, the furniture of death, that there will be a process within the Vatican that the Vatican goes through with the death of a pope. And you would go through that. But, but don't get into the, if you like, the meat of the subject of who succeeds and what are the issues. 
until a little while after you've announced the death, because you will offend your audience. Now, how do you prepare in advance for death? Obituaries. Obituaries are very, very important. And all major journalistic organisations, newspapers, TV stations, radio stations, have big files of obituaries ready. In TV and radio, you will have kit parts of obituaries, pre-recorded interviews on major people, talking about them, and it's hard. I've not actually had to do one of these myself, but I've talked to people who have. They said it's very hard when somebody talks to you and says, and says right, what did you know about Archbishop Tutu? Or what did you know about the Queen? You know, to start talking about somebody who is alive, who you have great respect for and know personally, as though they're dead, as though they're dead already. Difficult, but you need to get those kits apart. Because very quickly, in these days of rolling news coverage, as I said, I did 17 hours without a break on the day of the death of Diana, and then another team took over from me. I don't know how many hours without a break we concentrated on Diana's death in the world service, let alone the domestic services of the BBC. And it'll be huge when the Queen dies. And of course, what everyone was worrying, and, and it, I wrote a piece for the Royal African Society, they're very good African arguments site, another plug there. Um, I wrote a piece when Mandela went into hospital. And at the same time Mandela going into hospital, Prince Philip went into hospital. And I wrote at the beginning, this could be every journalist's nightmare. <laughs> Two big deaths at once. Because what do you do? Particularly saying something like the World Service. You've got to report at length the de death of Prince Philip. But you, do you give Mandela preference? Do you give Prince Philip? How do you do it? I mean, poor Mother Teresa <coughs> died, I think it was the day before Diana's funeral. Yeah. And she got... We did cover it at the World Service, and I think we covered it reasonably well, but probably not in the depth or the length that we would have done. And there was and another thing, I, I won't tell lots of bad taste jokes. I know thousands of them, but I won't tell them. When she died, it was soon after, when Diana died, Elton John, the singer who knew her, admired her, rewrote Candles in the Wind for Diana. There was the joke going around, many of you may have heard it, that when Mother Teresa died and death was thrown very, away very quickly, they said, well, Elton John will write one for her called Sandals in the Bin. <laughs> <laughs> and you, I'm afraid it's distasteful, but horrifically, and I even found it disturbing, I'm not a royalist, I've got fairly hard outer shell. Within two hours of Diana's death, I had journalists on the phone, BBC journalists, newspaper journalists who we were fixing up to do interviews, telling me jokes about Diana's death. Mm -hmm. Within an hour, and I was on the day of 9-11 as well, within an hour of 9-11 people were telling me 9-11 joke, jokes. There were awful, bad taste jokes within a couple of hours of the tsunami hitting. People do it, but it's, I've, I've also known, my wife was a casualty nurse, an accident and emergency nurse at one stage, and she said it's the same in an A&E ward. You joke, you joke with black humour. Policemen, I played a lot of rugby, and I played with policemen and soldiers, they joke. And they say it's a way of getting through it. The trouble is, when the jokes become known outside that community, then they're viewed really badly. People do not understand. But if you think, I mean, I'm sure all of you have been to funerals. Funerals are often places where you end up laughing because a joke, even a bad joke, will break the tension.
And you do end up, particularly afterwards, when the drink perhaps begins to flow at the wake. Jokes, and I know my father-in-law who died 18 months ago, he said, I want you to laugh at my, at my funeral and my wake. I don't want it to be solemn. Laugh. So, have obituaries ready, have sound bites. And obituary writing can be fa fascinating. The reason I put Tony Howard, Red Red Wine, is many of you probably won't know of Tony Howard, but a lot of you will. Great British political journalist. We used to use him at the World Service a lot as what was called a presenter's friend in the studio for long programmes. I remember working with him a lot on the devolution votes in Britain. And he was our pre presenter's friend. And we would always end up in the Bush House bar and have a couple of bottles of red wine. And he was telling me over red wine, his last job was as obituaries editor of the Times. And he said he absolutely loved it. It was fascinating. And although it was dealing with death, he said that he felt it was dealing with history and, in a lot of ways, celebrating people's lives through writing a good obituary. Death foretold, media does prepare. Death watches at hospitals can become very distasteful. Particularly the Mandela death, and I'm, and I'm now running out of time, I think, so I'll move very quickly. Don't jump the gun. Playwright Nora Ephron's death was reported a few hours before it happened. Even worse, somebody most of you won't have heard of, very good English folk violinist Dave Swarbrick. His obituary was in the Daily Telegraph when he was alive and well. Just as Mark Twain's obituary was published, and he said, reports of my death are greatly exaggerated. I was going to show you a bit of a, a clip from Diana's death, but I won't. I mean, this just shows all the immense detail that there was available of her injuries. The fact that she was so severely injured, there was no chance that she would survive. The, basically, her internal organs had been massively displaced. But this was not reported until much, much later. Probably the Daily Express, which still covers Diana, I think, almost on a daily basis, and probably deny any of this has happened, and she's still alive somewhere. But you have to think of all these sorts of things. Who was Diana, the public figure, the woman? What would royal government reaction be? What would public reaction be? Start getting the interviewees who knew her. And for a sudden death like Diana's, we didn't have interviewees lined up. We had to fight with everyone else to get them, and literally fight to get the best interviewees. I was very lucky I got the best presenter I could, a guy called Robin Lustig. I phoned him at four in the morning. His wife answered the phone and said, I'm very sorry to wake you. Can I speak to Robin? It's very, very urgent. It's the BBC. Put it to Robin. I just said, Robin, Diet and Dodie are dead. How quickly can you be in? He said, I'll be there in 20 minutes. And he was on air in 40 minutes. But when you have a death foretold, you have a lot of these things fixed up in advance, interviewees, presenters, friends who will sit in the studio. You prepare for bigger victories. You do training programmes. I ran, tra ran training programmes at the BBC World Service for the impending death of Pope John Paul II. Getting in things like, how soon do you ask about the succession? I ran one on Mandela. Six, no, more than that, seven years ago, I was running Mandela death practices with the BBC African Service. And there, the, the death watch became very, very controversial with the family, with one of his granddaughters really complaining about it. I think at that point I will actually stop so you can ask me questions. So there's plenty of time for John to react. Thank you very much. Very good.